are we are the defenders of the wall. We're we're the people who ensure that the system gets the right people and not the wrong ones. So it goes right back to first principles. It's very easy to structure a system in which we convict every single guilty person. That's a breeze. But you're going to catch a lot, a lot of innocent people in that. It's equally easy to ensure that we never commit a wrongful conviction, just to quit everybody. You will never throw a guilty person, uh, an innocent person rather, in jail. It just won't happen. The question is, where's is that balance? Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Of Counsel. I'm Sean Robichaux. In this episode, we'll be interviewing Edward Prucci. Edward is a criminal lawyer here in Toronto, and this is a really interesting interview where Edward explores fulfilling his lifelong dream as becoming a defense lawyer, the evolution of his practice, the controversy of the recent announcement of Bill C-5 and compelled judicial education, and the interplay between spirituality and advocacy. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Edward makes us all think, what does it mean to be a criminal defense lawyer? What are we fighting for? And some big picture questions and big picture answers on this episode of Up Council. <laughs> criminal law started. Um, I'm terrible for this because I, I'm asked to speak on that point all the time, right? Uh, I do the high school, uh, you know, career day type thing. And what I tell my kids is the opposite of what I myself did, right? You tell your kids, you don't have to make a decision right now. You don't even have to make a decision in high school. Maybe you don't even have to make a decision in university, you know, try a lot of different things, blah, blah, blah. I was that obnoxious kid who was like six, seven years old and decided I argue everything. I want to argue for a living. I want to be a criminal lawyer. I watched all the shows. I was the law and order kid, the LA law kid, the street legal for the, for our Canadian uh, mm-hmm. listeners kid uh, and all that stuff. And so law was, was what I always wanted to do. It was what my grandmother wanted my father to do that he did not do. So I was sort of the, you know, the person through whom that dream uh, could be seen. And when I got into law school, there was never any doubt in my mind that I was going to do criminal law until uh, the end of my first year. So I I went through first year, loved it, was doing all the criminal stuff that I expected. Um, Got a job actually with Leo Adler, who's in the office right next door to me. Uh, Maybe not today, but normally is in the office. This is in first year. This is between first and second year. So I summered with him for that year. It was amazing. Basically, I'd called him up. I mean, to rewind the story even further, uh, everyone knew that I was the kid who wanted to do criminal law in high school. Leo's daughter was in a carpool with the younger daughter of a friend of mine. They invited him over for a Friday night dinner. And that father says, you know who should really be here? That kid Prucci is always whining about criminal law. So they invited me over for dinner as well. Uh, and I must have researched like crazy for that dinner to be able to know every case Leo had done, what he was working on, uh, what he had lost, what he had won, how he had won it. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think I let anybody talk for three straight hours. I was just that 15-year-old who was going you know, berserk about the chance to meet Leo Adler at dinner. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think there's there's a real lesson to be learned here. And you're right that, you know, we have a lot of time, we live a lot longer, and we can make decisions later. But I'll give you an analogy. When I went to law school, there was this guy who was really into competition law. I right. didn't know anything about it. I, I, I still don't know anything about <laughs> it. But if I get a competition law case across my desk right now, that's the first person I think of, right? And just like your law school contemporaries probably think, send it to Edward because you're, you've branded yourself from such an earlier point. I know this will probably segue into our marketing sure. later on, but 
you know, at the same time, like, yes, we have time, but isn't there a value in making that choice earlier? Look, there is for sure a value to building the brand as the guy and to building a brand as the person who's passionate about something, you know, in many respects, even more so than being good at it. People won't necessarily know if you're good or bad at something, uh, because from an expert perspective, you know, they, they can't assess that in the same way that I don't know if my mechanic is good or bad at what he or she is doing under the hood of my car. I just don't know. I hope so. Uh, but I do know if they're passionate about it, uh, because I can tell whether they actually give a damn about my car. I can tell whether they give a damn about coming back to explain to me what happened with the car, whether they're willing to negotiate on what does need to be fixed and what doesn't need to be fixed. So those kinds of things, I think, shine through that kind of passion, that interest. And yes, you know, having been the obnoxious kid who was like that from the beginning, there's no doubt people today who only who knew me 30 years ago who would think I'll never need a criminal lawyer, right? It's, just, it's never going to happen. But when it does, and sometimes it does, I'm for sure getting that call. Uh, and it's strange because people will always start the call by, you know, I didn't think I would ever need to do this, but, uh, or some people will even start calls with me saying, I'm not calling for that because they're worried that that's why uh, they might think I'm calling. But so, you know, that kind of networking branding is for sure valuable. But, you know, looping back to the Leo Adler story, he, he ends off that Friday night saying, well, you know, if you ever do get into law school, give me a call. And serendipity, as is so often the case, uh, I gave him a call on the day that his articling student quit. Uh, and he's like, you need to start now. And so that Sunday, uh, I, I drove over to his house. We were supposed to go to the Don Jail, still open then at the time. Uh, and I thought, okay, I'm going to meet, you know, clients. I put on my best suit, shined my shoes, pull up the tie, you know, up to the neck, show up at, at Leo's house. He's in, in jeans and a, a button down. He wasn't a schlub, but he certainly wasn't dressed, you know, the way I expected to dress for court. He looks at me and says, we're going to the jail. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I've never been to jail before. He goes, take off the tie, unbutton that jacket, let's go. Uh, and so that was my start. But at the end of that year, you know, Leo, to his credit, told me you're, he enjoyed my time. I was very good at it. He appreciated that. He says, look, your grades are good. You don't have to do uh, something for me. You can go pretty much anywhere you want. Go somewhere else before you're mad at me for keeping you here. And he kind of pushed me out the door and said, go to a Bay Street firm. Uh, and that's what I did in, in my second year. I summered for what was then Goodman Phillips and Weinberg. It's now just plain old Goodman's. Uh, I, I summered with them. I articled for them. Uh, and at the end of that, uh, you know, there was no criminal obviously there. I tried desperately to try to bring in criminal cases. And even when I was successful, there were actually some, you know, reasonable files, at least from the perspective of an articling student that I was capable of attracting. Uh, and the firm was like, Ed, stop it. We don't, we don't want this. I mean, in more pointed form, they said, we don't want the, these people in our, uh, boardrooms which I, I felt really kind of irked by. Um, and so there wasn't really a space for me there. They, they made me an offer that related to administrative law. They said, you know, we don't want you to do litigation, but we think there's space for you in this uh, in this department. And I had a really, really tough choice to make, right? Because I could sort of give up on on my dream, on my principles and say, all right, I'm going to do zoning law for, um, for big grocery stores and toy stores, which is what uh, that department at Goodman's was doing at the time. Uh, or I could take a flyer and walk away. Um, it was a long night. I remember that night very clearly, but I took a flyer and walked away, started my own practice, went back to Leo and rented the office next door from him. So I want to back up because um, one thing I've never asked any of the criminal lawyers we've had on the show, and it's something I know you can answer as someone who's very much in the trial courts, someone who deals with the, the grittiness of criminal law, um, when you went to jail for that first time with Leo, uh, what was your impression and has much changed? And for our listeners, what is it like 
That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, look, I had some expectations. I'd watch TV like anybody else had watched TV. Uh, but the Dawn in particular, that's a jail that's no longer open. The Dawn was pretty notorious in Canadian history as a rough place to do time, right? It was not meant as a, uh, at least in, in the more recent years before its closure, it was a remand facility. So one of these places where you're there because you're waiting for trial on something else. So it would have anybody from, you know, the guy who perhaps had been shoplifting 17 times and they finally decided we can't give this guy bail, all the way to people facing sexual assault, gun charges, murders, uh, and all that, you know, more or less kept together on the same range, perpetually overcrowded. Uh, so do you walk in the first time, the guards recognize Leo, no problem. Uh, you know, Leo's going through, I don't even know that they searched him. He makes a point of telling them, search this kid, you know, give him the full, <laughs> give him the full uh, dawn welcome and experience. And when that door closes, I mean, you've done this before, you hear it, it's, it's a long, slow, metal on metal creaking close. You can't help but snap your head back and turn around and realize that that door is closed. Um, and I didn't perhaps really get it until a few weeks later on when I went on my own, right? It's one thing to go, you know, tugging on the coattails of a guy like Leo Adler. Uh, a few weeks after that, I went and I had finished seeing my client was getting in an elevator to go down to the ground floor and be released. There was some sort of, uh, of lockdown as there so often is at these jails. The elevator stops and I'm just alone in an elevator locked at the dawn. Elevator probably about the size of the cells that my client would be kept in, except he'd probably have two or three or four other people uh, in there with him. And I remember, you know, buzzing that little alarm code and the guards just telling me, it's a lockdown, don't worry, we'll get to you eventually. That was like 45 minutes later. So that was my taste of incarceration. Uh, I didn't like it. But having said that, it's, it's obviously a place that we have to go. And, you know, you become a little bit inured to it. You become obviously used to it, but I, I hope we never become immune to it, right? Like if you, if you just breeze in and out of a jail and no longer recognize the reality of what it feels like to be behind bars, however good the facility is inside. And, you know, I've been to some of the federal penitentiaries, the quote unquote club feds, where people get to uh, have reasonably good accommodations, reasonably good opportunities. The fact that the door is closed is something that for me, I, you know, I don't get over. That loss of liberty is real. I remember one thing that struck me probably about five years ago. It was up at the Central North Correction Center, and you you probably know it. You walk this uh, walk this long plankway, it's barbed wire everywhere. You're walking into a pod, and you realize how impossible it would be to get out of here. You know, but for words, right? And and it struck me, you know, as defense lawyers, how with our words we can get past all these walls and barbed wires and the really surreal experience. And every time I walk past it, I always think that. Um, but moving then to um, perhaps the things that kept you going back to jails, motivation, and uh, clearly Leo has been a big part of your life. Um, uh, in addition to Leo, uh, what other motivators have kept you going back to these jails? Look, to, to me, criminal law was always the, the real, the pure form of law, which isn't to disparage you know, other things that I've done or other things that so many more of, of, of our you know, compatriots in the law do. The vast majority of lawyers obviously don't do criminal law. The vast majority of lawyers are not even litigators. Uh, in fact, many lawyers, you know, they rent their robes for their call to the bar because they're never going to use them again. Right? I didn't want to be that person. I certainly found when I was at Goodman's, um, 
unlike some of my colleagues, the, the number of commas, you know, after a deal did not excite me. And that's a problem, right? Because if you're not passionate about it, I, no disrespect to the people who do get passionate about that. The, the bigger the deal, the more complex the tax question, uh, you know, the, the, the higher the number of people it touches. And some of these deals touch thousands upon thousands of people, millions if you start bringing in shareholders. And yeah, there's real value on that. It didn't matter to me. It just didn't matter to me personally. I didn't care all that much about winning those cases. Uh, and that was a sure sign to me that this is a problem, right? If I don't care about winning a case that is obviously very important to my client, I can intellectually be good at it, but I don't know that I could ever be great at it. Um, when it came to criminal law, uh, maybe it's a bit of a perverse, you know, weird thing that's just ingrained in us as, as sort of the goaltenders of, uh, uh, of law. You know, everybody says goalies are crazy. And I think criminal lawyers are a little bit crazy that way. We've taken a few too many legal pucks to the head. <laughs> but the only thing that interested me was those were the people I was passionate about. And to this day, I mean, losing a case sucks. It sucks really badly, even if it's a case you think you should have lost, which isn't to say, I know I get this question all the time. Why are you trying to get guilty people out? It, it, you know, we can have that conversation in another context or later on today, but it's just about feeling like I had a, a job. I had a responsibility. I did my best. And sometimes my best is not enough. That's not that's not a happy feeling. But the flip side of that is when you do your best and it is, and you, you accomplish something for somebody, there's a real high to that, like a real high. And so that keeps me coming back. Hmm. What about these days? What's your day-to-day practice look like now compared to where you were when you started your practice? Yeah, it's definitely different. Um, you know, for better or worse, there's not a lot of legal aid left in my practice. Very little of that. There's not a lot of going to jails left in my practice. Uh, you know, very few of my clients are, are in custody. Um, and my practice is very diverse in the sense that whereas when I started, you know, I'd be going to just Old City Hall and perhaps Metro North, a thousand Finch, the stuff closest to my office. The reality now is that I'm as often, you know, in Barrie or Collingwood or uh, Oshawa or Scarborough. I mean, you could be anywhere. So when people ask me what a typical day is, there isn't really a typical day. I guess a typical day would probably be doing two or three media appearances at some point, making a call or running into a, a some sort of studio, running to a courthouse somewhere outside of the city, heading back into the city to cover something that's off in the afternoon to do a pretrial or somewhat, uh, get back to the office or to my home, do some work there on whatever the file is the next day and answer a call at three in the morning from somebody who just got arrested. I mean, that could be a typical, you know, Thursday. Mm -hmm. And when you look back to where you were when you first started, do you lament those times? Do you think <laughs> things were a bit simpler then? Um, or do you like where you're at right now? No, I, I, I mean, I like where I'm at now. Um, it's not where I saw myself necessarily being. Um, it's certainly, it's certainly different. I didn't anticipate you know, being a quote unquote cash lawyer for, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. in the sense that I probably thought I'd be doing more of the legal aid work than what has ended up in my, uh, you know, coming into my practice. Um, and that may be just because of where I came from. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to work, for example, at a firm like yours when you first started, where there's, uh, there's a high volume, there's a lot of people coming through and you're seeing all this diversity. I went off on my own. Mm -hmm. And when you're off on your own, you know, obviously you'll take whatever you can get and whatever you can get is often legal aid. But it also means for me reaching out to that broad network of people who 
since I was that pipsqueak 10 year old, mm-hmm. uh, knew this is the guy doing criminal law. So I was talking to, uh, you know, every real estate lawyer that I knew, every, every corporate guy who had ever worked at Goodman's or anywhere else that I saw. I, I was tapping, um, you know, various networks when I was doing philanthropic work within the Jewish community, you know, in my synagogue, going up and down the aisle saying, look, I, I know nobody here needs a criminal lawyer. That's not true, but I like to say that just to keep people uh, happy. But hey, you're doing real estate, you're doing personal injury, you're doing family, you know, keep me in mind. I sent out a lot of letters when I first opened my practice, just these little cards with my name stamped on them. And it was, you know, that that first Christmas, I was sending out gift baskets rather than receiving them. I was sending them out saying, just know that I'm here uh, and, and hoping. Um, so it changed my practice a lot. And I certainly didn't see the media dimension that I'm happy to tell that story at some point, but that was completely by fluke uh, that, that I ended up falling into that. And it's become a pretty significant part of my practice. You know, I probably spend, I don't know, 20% of my time doing various media commentary one way or the other. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about that. But before I move on, I, I, it's sort of a two-part question. If you were to sit down with Ed Prucci, first year call, and you had a minute with yourself, what would you tell yourself? And is that the same conversation you have with an articling student now in 2020? Yes and no. Um, I, I think it was easier for me to accomplish what I did when I did it than it would be for somebody trying to accomplish what I have today. That's a sad thing to say. And so I'm I am much more cautious when, you know, new calls or people thinking about going into law or thinking about going into criminal law come to me. My, my first instinct is to try to dissuade them, to be honest. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this goes to my religious background, but Jews, you know, we're, we're not, um, we're not a proselytizing people, generally speaking. We're not out there looking for more Jews. If you're interested, in fact, the, the Talmud says you're supposed to push somebody away three times. And if they keep coming back, then you say, all right, let's talk about what it means. I kind of feel that way when it comes to criminal law. I'll push people away once, twice. If they keep coming back, if they display that kind of, uh, you know, one, one-sided, single-minded passion, then I'm, I don't want to crush their dreams. I just want them to understand this is a hard road um, and be prepared for it. You know, don't make the, the assumptions that I certainly did back when I left Goodman's, right? I, I made the assumption that, well, if I'm good at this, I'll make just as much money as I would have on Bay Street. No, I won't. That's bullshit. Uh, and no, I don't, right? I know that now. I don't know if I would tell, you know, Prucci in 1998 that, uh, cause it would scare the crap out of him. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly come to know that now. So, you know, my advice, I wouldn't try to necessarily dissuade people, but I, I will absolutely not paint a rosy picture. This is a tough way to make a living. Uh, you meet some very tough people, some of whom are very thankful for what you do, a lot of whom. Not so much. Um, and so you need to be intellectually stimulated and you need to be the kind of person who can kind of make their own joy because it's not necessarily going to come from uh, the people you work with or the judges who you're in front of. Some of them will be nice to you. Some of them will not. The criminal bar is actually quite nice. The criminal defense bar, you know, it's, it's despite how large it's gotten, I still find it to be very, very collegial and very, very cooperative. And, um, you know, there are some cutthroat exceptions, but you can ask somebody for help. Somebody comes into my office, you know, no one's trying to steal that file from a kid who's got a question. They genuinely will spend the time wanting to help. And I've certainly been the beneficiary of that from, uh, from many senior lawyers uh, and even junior lawyers. I've had circumstances in the last little while where there's areas I've gone into that I haven't done before. I know somebody who's been doing a lot of that. I'll give them a call and say, look, I know you do this kind of work and I haven't, but I've got a client who wants this help. Uh, what can you tell me? Mm-hmm. Part of that dedication, you know, to get through this um, requires the ability to say, I'm going to put in more hours than the person I'm going to be cross-examining. And I think a good illustration of that is, 
you ended up becoming a certified breath tech at some point. Why? <laughs> so I'll tell you what led me into that is over and over again, I kept hearing from crowns and police officers and impaired driving cases, you know, the machine is not wrong. Your client is guilty. The machine is not wrong. The machine is basically infallible, et cetera, et cetera. Well, is that true? I wanted to see it for myself. And it wasn't that hard. There was a certified toxicologist who was offering these courses specifically to defense lawyers. Three-day course. It involved a lot of drinking. Uh, so what could go wrong, right? Uh, we were staying in a hotel, me and a couple of other defense lawyers. And this guy came in and he himself was an ex-cop and a certified forensic toxicologist. He brought us what was then an intoxilizer 5,000. We're now onto the 8,000, 9,000s we're getting too soon and uh, doing even more so when it comes to uh, drug impaired driving. And he basically went through the mechanics of the machine and to the point where we were even, you know, at the end of each night, we'd be drinking and seeing how long do you have to blow? What what can uh, stall this machine? How much air do you really need to get through it? And to understand that. And, you know, for better or worse, the crowns and the cops are mostly right. I'm not going to say the machines are infallible, but a properly operated machine, there's a lot of checks and balances there. And it's more likely to favor a lower than real reading than a higher than real reading. And I certainly learned that at 0.08, I'm way drunk, like way drunk. So, you know, the old two beer defense, by the time I got to 0.08, it was way more than two beers. Uh, and never in a million years would I have thought of driving home that way. Now, I'm, you know, I'm not a professional alcoholic. Uh, some of my clients sadly have been, but it was very instructive for me. Um, you know, both in, in the sense of, of understanding the police perspective and the crown perspective, but understanding those perspectives makes me a better defense lawyer too. Why would I go down the road of a futile, you know, fruitless attack on a machine rather than looking at the, the perhaps tiny area on which maybe this is being operated improperly. You know, you start to learn about interference and the occasional thing that could have had an issue. You know, asking those questions about conditions like diabetes that may mimic the results or asking questions about particular ethanol gum uh, that may mimic results and things like that. So, you know, have I ever won a case because of that? I'm not sure that I have. Um, do I have a better understanding of what goes into the science of those kinds of machines? For sure. Do I have a better understanding personally about what it takes to become impaired and what it might feel like to be pulled over at the roadside and made to give that kind of breath? Absolutely. I think that's a benefit in and of itself. I think this speaks to the level of preparation that's required to become an exceptional defense lawyer. So let me ask you, I mean, this is obviously your answer there was part of that, but what does preparation mean to you in a general sense, but also specifically? So if I gave you two analogies, if you thought of uh, a relatively straightforward domestic case, uh, one person saying one thing, another person saying the threat never took place. Uh, that type of preparation, and then the preparation for a month-long homicide. Um, so I know there's kind of three questions in there, but ultimately it's about preparation and what that means. I don't think those are different, by the way. I, I, I don't certainly approach those differently. And, and I'll tell you, I, I wish I still did this every single time. It was what Leo drilled into me. But the very first thing you do is look look inside your criminal code. So, And that sounds so stupid, right, when you've been doing it this long. But it's so obvious. Just because you've done 16 assault cases or 2,300 sexual assault cases or whatever, go back and read the section of the criminal code, the information to which your client is charged, and make sure you break down uh, what the requirements are for the Crown to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Are there specific enumerated uh, defenses within there? Is there a reverse burden or reverse onus in some of these circumstances, um, particular evidentiary things? So you, know, you have to do that with anything, from a shoplifting charge to a murder charge. Um, after that, another thing Leo has always drilled into me is timelines. I use timelines all the time. It is very difficult to fully, I think, prepare for any case without understanding at what moment did certain things happen. And so 
you know, for very simple cases, the timeline might be very short. It's two or three events, right? You know, person said this at this moment, person said this at that moment, police arrive. That may be all it is. I can tell you, particularly with impaired driving cases, as you know, you know, you're breaking down that timeline, certainly by the minute, sometimes by the second, because there are so many tiny technicalities there where it's a question of when was this demand read? When did officer A, as opposed to officer B, C, and D say that this demand was read? Because it's not always the same. And so timelines can get very complicated, but there's such a great tool once you get into court because things are going to go off the rails. No matter how prepped you are, someone's going to give an answer you didn't expect uh, or think it's going to go in a different direction. And when you have that timeline committed to memory or at least written down on a paper, you can go back and say, wait, that triggers something to me. So timeline. And I'm, I'm obnoxious uh, about the sort of physical layout of my prep. I, I hate being the guy who comes in with, you know, just an envelope where everything is stuffed in. I have a lot of file folders. I, every witness gets their own, uh, their own tab. And I, ideally, I like to keep everything in one binder. Some of them obviously spill over from that, but I try to create some sense, uh, over this so that I can sort of quickly reach out uh, and grab something. I, you know, I know that I'm not going to be able to commit everything to memory, but if I understand kind of the index, then I can get whatever I need uh, as quickly as I need it. You know, obviously judges will always give you that moment and we've all done it and seen it, you know, court's indulgence. I hate doing that. I'll do it if I have to, but court's indulgence is also the witness's indulgence, right? They're sitting there thinking about what's he going to ask next? What did he just ask now? Why is he asking for a break? Um, and, you know, in front of a jury, there's obviously some theatrics to that, but in particular, I don't want to give them time to to figure out where I'm headed. I should know where I'm headed. What about misunderstandings? What is something that commonly comes up in cocktail parties or even meeting with clients where people just have a gross misunderstanding of criminal law in Canada? There are so many of those. I mean, all the cocktail questions of how can you defend those people? What if you know that your client is guilty? You know, the police wouldn't have charged if there wasn't something to uh, the offense or to the offender. It becomes tiresome to kind of give those explanations over and over again. But I genuinely believe it's really important to do that, to educate the public. It's it's frankly the, the main joy that I get out of doing media work is to answer the same tireless question over and over again. Because I know I'm not going to reach everybody that way, but a lot of people have texted me or called me afterwards or commented on, on stories that have appeared in media and said, yeah, it makes a little bit more sense to me now is to try to allow people to envision themselves in a circumstance that they think they'd never, ever be in. Because for the vast majority of my clients, they were you, you know, a day ago, they thought this would never happen to them either. Then there was a divorce that went sideways and somebody made an allegation. Then a kid made an accusation that, that they barely know and don't understand how they got to that point. Then the bank gave them a call and said, what happened with this check? Now, look, are they all innocent? I'm not going to, I'm not so naive as to say that every person I've ever represented, you know, never did anything wrong. But I certainly feel that a huge chunk of the people who I've represented, probably the majority of the people I've represented, are they're not guilty of everything the police say they are. There's an enormous amount of overcharging. They're just not. Um, and, you know, we are we are the defenders of the wall. We're, we're the people who ensure that the system gets the right people and not the wrong ones. So it goes right back to first principles. Very easy to structure a system in which we convict every single guilty person. That's a breeze, but you're going to catch a lot, a lot of innocent people in that. It's equally easy to ensure that we never commit a wrongful conviction, just to quit everybody. You will never throw a guilty person, uh, an innocent person rather in jail. It just won't happen. The question is, where's that balance? And 
you know, British common law traditions, the American tradition, basically every Western democracy is premised on the age old number. It's not a real, you know, equation, but better that 10 guilty men should go free than one innocent man should suffer was the old, uh, was the old kind of medieval saying. Um, and I don't know whether it should be 10 to one or 20 to one or 10 to five, but I know that that balance is important to maintain. Do you see a, do you see a degradation of that principle? 100%. Sexual assault cases. So, well, two, I would say sexual assault and impaired driving cases, we've seen a degradation in that. With impaired driving, I think the presumption is everybody the police arrest are guilty. They just are. And everything is a quote unquote technical defense with a very poor understanding by members of the public that, you know, yeah, impaired driving is awful. I mean, absolutely awful. It's a it, it's a scourge on society. Every court has told us that. We all inherently know it. Everybody knows someone who's been injured or unfortunately killed by an impaired driver. Uh, but the question we have to ask ourselves is how how important is it for us to constrain the liberties of everybody to get at those repeats, those people who just keep doing that? How how much of an invasive search are you prepared to go through on a regular basis? How comfortable are you knowing that for me as a white male guy, the likelihood of me getting stopped at quote unquote random is pretty low. The likelihood of someone else who, you know, maybe a minority member in another neighborhood or perhaps not fitting the quote unquote mold of who they think ought to be driving that car on that day in that place. How many of those people are you prepared to have stopped and then let go after they've been uh, breathalyzed? But on the sexual assault side, it's far, far worse. We've, we're very close to reaching a point, in my view, where there is a different standard of proof when it comes to sexual assault cases. And I'm very cognizant of the history that brought us there, right? For many, many years, it was effectively impossible for a woman to successfully uh, make a claim for sexual assault because as soon as the man said it didn't happen, there was all sorts of mythology that went along with that and basically any excuse went. Uh, and that was awful, terrible. It's contributed to an enormous marginalization of women in our society. The question is, what do we do about that now? You know, do we do we fix it or do we go to a point where the quote unquote hashtag believe the victim? It's a very, very problematic statement. It's a statement that came out of the mouths of police officers, you know, back in the Gomeshi investigation. Hashtag believe the victim. I am super cautious to not even refer to a person as a victim until there's been a conviction. They're not a victim. And I know that hurts to say that. They might turn out to be a victim, but not just technically, for in reality, at the moment that a person is going through a trial, they are not yet a victim. They are a complainant. They have brought a complaint. They should be respected for that complaint. They should be encouraged to bring it forward. They should not be degraded. They should be asked only relevant questions, and they should be asked those questions in as sensitive a way as possible. But they are not to be believed, quote unquote. Right. They are to have their evidence assessed, weighed, uh, and determined in accordance with all the other evidence. And I don't think we do that anymore. Do you think this language change in legislation, and we see this uh, recently with Bill C-5 that's coming in, where immediately um, parliamentary members are describing people as survivors. Do you think this actually has an effect, or are we just being lawyers, being difficult about words? I guess the question is have an effect on whom? Um, I think it has a positive effect on uh, complainants because it does encourage complainants to come forward. So I think when you, when you see that parliamentarians are, are taking the kinds of actions that they are, uh, certainly in today's climate, I think it is easier. It's not easy, but it is easier, uh, for a woman or any person who believes that they are victimized to say, you know what? I am going to go to the police, uh, because I don't think they're going to degrade or embarrass or disbelieve me. Right. And that's important. Like they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be starting from a position of you're a liar. Um, 
but I think it's problematic also because it is sending a very powerful telepathic message to jurors and now directly to judges saying, you guys are getting this wrong. Too many rapists, quote unquote, are going free. Uh, and I don't know that that's the reality, right? I'm not prepared to say that, yeah, there are people who are being acquitted. But again, we have to go back to our first discussion. For the state to take away a person's liberty and to close that iron door that clangs behind them for however long that's going to be, you'd better be pretty damn close to sure before you do that. And that's hurtful to a complainant because it means that if, if she is only capable of getting a jury or a judge, you know, half sure or mostly sure, that person's not going to be convicted. And that's awful. I mean, I know that does not validate that person's experience. But what is more awful? The question is, is it, is, is it that? Is it what happens to that victim who doesn't get to have her story upheld, believed, validated? Or is it worse for the state to accidentally, inappropriately utilize its vast power to imprison someone who shouldn't have been imprisoned? And for millennia, centuries certainly, we have said the latter is the worst the worst fate because it's us, the state, who are making the mistake. We're the ones throwing somebody in jail, ruining their family, taking away their jobs. And so if we're going to take that action, we have to be sure. Uh, that has shifted. Uh, I think there's definitely an approach now in society that says, you know what, we're prepared to see a few more innocent people go to jail. Yeah. And you see, you know, the shift seemed to start around the Gomeshi verdict where uh, there was politicians directly attacking the verdict, yet not reading what it actually was about or considering the full circumstance. And then we saw that ramped up further with um, the Bushi case, where you have the attorney general suggesting that the jury got it wrong, judges are getting it wrong, and often from a completely uninformed position. So, you know, I wonder with the legislation, um, wonder what your thoughts are on this, is after C5, what's next? I mean, what, where do we go from here? And what else are we telling judges and juries, for that matter, that they got wrong? Look, it's going to depend on who the government of the day is. And that's where the real challenge is, right? You, many people may look at this and say, you know what, I'm, I'm 100% with the government today on uh, making a point of forcing judges, whether they like it or not, to recognize rape myth, to recognize, uh, you know, the, the signs of sexual assault, and perhaps most importantly, to recognize that there isn't any one way to be a, a, a sexual assault victim. That's perhaps been the biggest problem uh, historically is that we've had this stereotype of what a victimized woman looks like. And if the witness in front of you doesn't look exactly like that person who's reported immediately, you know, distanced herself from, from her assailant, uh, crying, emotional, if, if any of those things are absent, we see, we have in the past seen those as signs of disbelief, signs of a lack of credibility when that's wrong. But the flip side is is extremely problematic. And what happens next when a different government comes in and says, you know what, what I'm really concerned about? Financial crime or impaired driving or search and seizure. You know, why are so many people getting away with telling cops they can't come into their houses at three in the morning just to check to see what's going on there? You don't have anything to hide, do you? Are we going to start educating judges in that manner. Uh, it's it's very telling that this is the only area in which it's proposed we educate our judges. You know, so many people have come to ask me about Bill C5. Why you know why would you ever be opposed to education? Education's wonderful. Why would we ever want to educate people less, especially our judges? Judges are educated. I don't know if people realize that. I don't mean like after, I don't mean that they went through a lot of school, uh, but when they get appointed as judges, they go through a lengthy period of education. Yes, they're on the bench right away, but they're going on a regular basis and it goes all the way through the course of their careers. They're going into uh, meetings regularly. They're talking about the law. They're hearing from people, but it's not the government telling them, this is the area we want you to focus on. And more importantly, this is the result we want you to get to because 
implicit and barely hidden in Bill C-5 is the statement basically by government that says you judges are mostly getting it wrong. You're letting too many guilty people go tighten up the ship. That's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder too uh, how transparent all of this process will be. As we both know, judicial education is sealed. We don't know. Super opaque. Right. Who's giving these lessons? What is the lesson? Who's educating them? Who else is coming in to perhaps temper that? Like I haven't heard anything about this legislation that says we're going to have X, you know, group from stakeholder rights group, but we're also going to have the following people from uh, the Innocence Project, for example, to talk about all the people who have spent time in jail for rapes and murders that they didn't commit. Um, is that what's going to happen? I mean, arguably, one could create a balanced curriculum that sends the message uh, to judges appropriately. I'd be all in favor of that. I would hope that's what's happening now. Certainly, the feedback I get from colleagues, recently appointed colleagues, is they are educating us in this. We don't go in blind. Uh, this, I think this is more political theater than it is actually trying to fix a problem. And you know, one thing that struck me lately as I've been thinking about this more and, you know, things have blown up a little bit on Twitter as of late as a result. Don't they always? But I think that this legislation is a bit of shirking responsibility back to judges in that if the legislators believe that the following things are simply not admissible uh, in any particular trial, then they should just legislate that. Or, or more overtly, they should say, the only circumstances where consent is obtained is where it is signed in these circumstances or it is explicitly stated, period. And then the political backlash, if any, would come back from that um, you know, expression. But here it's saying in secret to judges, this is what you can't decide on. Public doesn't know any of this. And all of what we know, of course, is sexual assault cases are largely opaque as well. A lot of the things in the motions that go on. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track. What I want from you is a feel-good story. Tell me a story that you as a defense lawyer often look back on to get you through the days. Um, so I'll give you the story of a case that started off quite badly and ended off uh, quite well. I was representing a young mother, first child, um, young mother and father, actually. And so there was I was counsel for the mom and there was a colleague of mine uh, and a good friend who was counsel for dad. Both of them had been charged with a pretty serious assault on this kid who had a number of broken bones. Um, and, you know, when we spoke to mom and dad, there was no explanation for how these injuries could have occurred. Uh, and the kid had been born very premature. We went back and got the hospital records. There were a lot of concerns about his health even at the time. And as we started to delve into it more, um, you know, we felt that there was very much a, a defense of, of basically accident here. That This was a child who suffered from severe low bone density. It was fairly rare, but the kind of thing where we thought normal handling could result in the kinds of fractures that were being seen. We went through a lengthy preliminary inquiry. We somehow managed to convince Legal Aid to, there was no expert in Canada who would speak to this. We managed to convince Legal Aid to bring us an expert from the US uh, who has paid just a paltry pittance for this. It was quite funny actually at one point because the Crown asked in front of the jury, you know, to close off what they thought was a great cross-examination. And, you know, Dr. So-and-so, you're getting paid for this, aren't you? Yes. And then she should have stopped there and said, how much are you getting paid for this, doctor? And he says, you know, I don't recall the exact number, but it was something like $800. Uh, oh, and my flight. And he threw it in. He'd been there for days, right? That was what Legal Aid was going to pay. And it was just wonderful from our perspective. But at the end of the day, uh, the jury convicted. And they were out for something like eight and a half days. So they were clearly on the fence for a while. And I was devastated because I just 
never believed that this woman was capable of the kind of violence uh, that they believed she was capable of. And when sentencing rolled around, dad disappeared. He didn't even show up for sentencing, so he absconded. His capture is an interesting story in and of itself later on. But um, I sent the appeal to another council. There was an appeal done. A new trial was ordered. I went back on the new trial and ultimately was successful. Uh, so that was a case that had all the ups and the downs. And dad ultimately was captured because he was found uh, by the crown attorney herself when she was sitting at a restaurant, peering through the window uh, of, the, of the short order cook line. And there wow. he was in the back under an assumed name, uh, ironically, at a, at a restaurant called The Village Idiot, which I'll, I'll always remember, not because I've been to The Village Idiot so much, but because we all thought, man, what an, what an idiot goes back and serves the crown attorney effectively who prosecuted and convicted him. So uh, he ended up doing his time. My client did not. And she reminds me today, even though she lost custody of that child, because she was ultimately acquitted, um, she's maintained some level of relationship. So the adopted family knows her and she gets to go back and see the kid and he's grown up and, uh, and is doing very well. That's, you know, there's some warm and fuzzies to that. Hey everyone, before we continue, a quick thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis has been essential in developing the podcast with us and bringing you the content you've learned to love. For this episode, be sure to check out the links in our main page where you can visit the latest solo and small firm e-brief brought to you by LexisNexis Canada. This is an invaluable resource for solo and small firms, which includes a solo spotlight interview with lawyers, articles highlighting solo and small firm trends, areas of practice, newsletters, and more. In the latest eBrief, you'll see topics such as how can AI help lawyers, cloud security, and why legal marketing often falls flat. This is an essential resource brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, and we encourage you to visit the link by going to our website, roboshowlaw.ca, clicking on this podcast, and you'll be able to click through to all of these links. In addition, you'll find links to practice notes and meeting wills, trusts, and estate litigation and dispute and intellectual property and technology experts. On this page, there's profiles and interviews of some of the top litigators and practitioners in this area. These interviews are fascinating, and I encourage you all to go and read them. And you'll also find a link to the three-part series on wills, trusts, and estates, digital estate myths. So thank you once again to LexisNexis Canada for bringing this wonderful content, and thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, back to our podcast. So I'm sure that case... Uh, hit the press and had a lot of coverage. But, you know, it brings us to another topic, and that is you're often the commentator on these cases. You're often the person giving a perspective from the criminal defense lawyer's point of view of what's going on so the public can understand. So why do you do the media commentary? What do you get out of it? And uh, will you keep going into this sort of stuff in the future? So I'll tie it back actually directly to that case. That was long before I did any media commentary. But there was media coverage. Christy Blatchford, you know, one of the most prolific and, and outstanding, you know, writers uh, of our time, certainly in Canada on the, on the criminal justice front, was covering portions of that case. And I remember on the weekend after um, the conviction, but before the, so we had launched our appeal and done the bail pending appeal, there was a big spread. I think she was then at the Globe and Mail, now to the National Post. There was a big two-page spread in the, in the Globe and Mail about it. I was so mad at how she had described my client, I'd given like some physical descriptors of, about how she looked and beady eyes and this and that. And, and so I, I wrote her just a viciously scathing 
email, I think it was. Um, and, you know, she responded, but nothing ever changed in that story. And we've become friends. I have an autographed book, uh, copy of her latest book here. Uh, and obviously, you know, she and I work together at News Talk 1010 now, so I see her quite a bit. Uh, but that was the kind of thing that long before I was doing official media commentary, I just realized what a powerful weapon and tool the media could be. And I was not prepared to let a client of mine uh, get get the shaft uh, in that way. Uh, now it's become much more important to me to speak sort of on behalf of the system, not that I'm like a self-appointed white knight for the system, but to be able to explain the kinds of things that you and I take for granted, right? We understand the presumption of innocence. We understand the importance of reasonable doubt. We understand why everybody needs to have uh, counsel who is compensated fairly so that they can get an appropriate and fair defense. Those are not, you can't make an assumption that those, that baseline understanding is there across the board amongst the public or even amongst, you know, well-educated journalists who are coming to ask you these questions. So I talk a lot less about my own clients. I very rarely, in fact, will talk about uh, my own cases that are in the media unless there's a really good reason why I need to shift the narrative away from something that's being said. But I'm more than happy to talk about your clients when they're in the media or somebody <laughs> else's clients, uh, because I think it helps put some perspective on there. You know, I'm not the mouthpiece for the defenses. Sometimes I'll be hard on on my own colleagues when I think, you know, the client is not necessarily the most savory person and the trial's, you know, perhaps not going well. But it's important for people to hear that and to understand it and to get that window into the justice system. We talk about how uh, open our system of justice is. Sure, you can walk into any courtroom you want and watch whatever you want. But the reality is that means taking a day off of work and sitting through something that's very complicated, very tedious, and largely very boring. It's not like watching Matlock or Law and Order. You're going to see those moments, you know, they're very few and far between. So someone needs to be able to bring those snippets you know, to the public and to show them, which, and I think you agree with me on this because I've seen you, you know, you have the same Twitter debates. I think there should be more, not less uh, transparency to the justice system. I think it's time for cameras in some of our courtrooms. I think it's time for audio in our courtrooms. Uh, I know it will change the, the dynamic a little bit and perhaps not for the better, but I think the good outweighs the bad in that, uh, in that regard. What would you say to a lawyer who isn't familiar with the media? You've got both sides. You've got, you know, your media relations as defense counsel, but also as a media reporter in trying to make sure the public is interested in a story. So if a lawyer were to come out and facing a scrum unexpectedly, what would you tell that junior lawyer? First of all, never, never face a scrum unexpectedly. You should know that that's coming, right? It's not going to be. I've never had a case where like, wow, I didn't know that all these people were going to be standing outside. You know, come on, you know the kinds of cases that are attracting that attention. So you should anticipate that that scrum may be there. And you should, if you haven't figured it out already yourself, talk to someone. I'm happy to be that person, but it doesn't have to be me. Talk to someone who has some experience on that before. You know, have an idea of what it is you might want to say or what it is you don't want to say. And even if you want to say nothing, Understand how you're going to say that you're going to say nothing because it doesn't really help to come out, put your hand up on top of somebody's camera lens so that the picture in the paper is, you know, you looking like you're guilty of something when, you know, as a lawyer, you're never guilty of anything. Okay. I'm not guilty of anything. Maybe my client's going to be found guilty, but I'm just here to do a job. Uh, but understand how you're going to have that conversation. Um, and when the media, you know, call you up, they're, they're not your friends. Right. I am friends with member, many members of the media, but they're not my friends professionally. Right. And if they call me up because they have an interest in a case of mine, 
we're not friends. That's not the reason they're calling. They may sound very friendly, but that's not the reason they're calling, right? They have a job to do. So there's no such thing as off the record, uh, virtually no such thing. I would trust almost nobody with an off the record conversation. Um, uh, but they will be reasonable with you. If you say, you know, I, I need a minute to think about this. They've got some questions. Even in the scrum, you can say, you know, we're not going to be taking any questions now. Client is heading to trial. We want to preserve his right to a reasonable trial. Uh, I'll be taking questions at some later point or feel free to email me your questions. And then you can take a more considered, take a deep breath, you know, run it by somebody more senior who's gone through this before, decide whether you should respond at all. And if so, how and in what measured way, you know, buy yourself some time uh, and warn your client about that too. They should not be surprised that they're coming out of the, uh, out of the courthouse to cameras and, and things point in their face. And to the extent possible, control the client. Some clients are not controllable, but they have to understand what, you know, you're the professional, what you think is in their best interest. Clients will often do things that are not in their best interest, but we should at the very least have told them what we think is best for them. So it's often said that two things you should never raise in polite conversation is politics and faith, but I'm going to raise both. <laughs> so pardon me for being rude, but um, I know that faith is important to you. And in preparing this interview, you told me that you're a practicing Orthodox Jew. And in my own research, I've come to learn that you're very active in the community. You're a graduate at the United uh, Jewish Appeal Federation's prestigious Joshua Institute a winner of the Shem Tov Award and hold a certificate in Jewish communal leadership from U of T Rotman and a number of other community involvements, uh, sitting with United Jewish Appeal, member of the board of directors with Halal Ontario. So tell me, does faith intersect with your approach to your profession or is that something that you've compartmentalized? No, I mean, you you know, largely you can't compartmentalize that. I, I think... I think if you're a person of faith, I mean, faith does uh, permeate, you know, every aspect of your life. That's that's part of the, the point of faith, right? Is it, you, if, if you believe, if you have that kind of sense of community, uh, that sense of spirituality, it's going to impact every every element of your life. Um, I don't think, you know, I'll be cautious. This is the kind of debate that has sunk a lot of people very recently. Most recently, I would say Andrew Scheer. Uh, I don't think your faith has to be externally facing in the sense of telling other people what to do, right? Uh, I, I have pretty firm beliefs uh, about what is what is right and what is wrong, what is good for me and what is bad for me and what is good for my family or my community. Um, I don't feel I need to legislate those beliefs uh, on anybody else. Uh, but to say that it, I can compartmentalize it and it has nothing to do with my practice of law, um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, the reality is our legal system is built on a millennia-old Judeo-Christian uh conception of what is justice. Uh, you know, we Jews in, in our Talmud have volume upon volume upon volume of rabbis doing nothing but sitting around in a room arguing minutia of law. And when I say minutia, I mean like crazy, crazy down to the letter level that sparked enormous arguments. And one of the most beautiful things about the Jewish tradition is that we don't just write down the right answer. Right. It's it, pictured as the world's longest answered debate. Mm. Right. Every question that was asked is noted. Every person that was wrong, quote unquote, was noted. And sometimes they don't even come down to a right answer. I believe that there's a reason why there's disproportionate representation of Jews uh, in law, whether you're an Orthodox practicing Jew or not. We have a centuries old, millennia old tradition of arguing for the sake of argument. Um, and I think that's a very beautiful thing. And it translates really well to law and in particular to criminal law about saying, you know what? I 
I'm, I have a job, I have a position, I can argue that position, and disagreeing with you does not make us enemies. In fact, it makes, makes whatever the answer is better for all of us. So that well, what could be more pure from a defense lawyer's perspective than that, of saying that, and it's hard to feel this way after you lose, but that even though I lost a case, I advanced the law by losing this case. And you were hurt. Uh, and you were hurt. Right. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't compartmentalize in that way. Um, I, the focus of my, my free time, such as it is, is on the Jewish community, not because I have a problem with any other communities, but because, you know, you work with your neighbors first, quote unquote, as it were. Um, so that that's an area that I know best. And if I can alleviate poverty in the Jewish community, if I can improve education in the Jewish community, um, you know, if I can do those kinds of things and, and improve uh, the, conti- the continuity of my community, then it's something that I'm going to spend some time on and take really seriously. So then moving to the other um, faux pas question of politics. Uh, In the last political election, I understand you considered running uh, provincially. And so this, you know, politics is a common thing for lawyers. We see it uh, pervasive that lawyers are always getting involved in politics. So what happened? Why and why not? I... So I've been drawn to politics for a long time. I mean, I read politics as a as a young kid. So much the way I read law, you know, I I loved going to uh, question period. That most people would despise that, but my dad would actually take me both to courthouses and to question period. I remember the days where he would take me to the old city hall just to sit and watch something going on at the hall, and then we'd go over to Queens Park uh, and you know watch a question period at Queens Park. So that was very much uh, ingrained in me, and we spent uh, time doing that. And I loved the debate. I mean. As lawyers, you know, we, we are debating all the time. Politicians are debating all the time. They're making the laws we debate about. So it's a very attractive, uh, you know, exciting kind of thing. But I've always kind of held away from it because the reality is politics is also a very ugly, uh, cantankerous, difficult you know, place to be. For all the good that you can do, there's uh, there's a lot of hatred in that space, both from the public towards you, from opponents towards you. Um, I think it's very difficult. It occasionally rises above that fray, but a lot of times it's not. So I've been pulled back and forth and said no many, many times. And in the last election, I came perhaps as close as I as I ever could. This was um, even before the, the leadership flip. So at the time, Patrick Brown was still the presumptive leader of the progressive conservatives. Um, and and I had been asked to run in a riding very close to uh, to my home, and I was giving it a thought about, you know, could I be the conservative uh, candidate for that riding? There was already one other person who had declared that they were going to run for that. I threw my hat in the ring for all of three weeks uh, and then was approached by Joe Oliver, who was a former federal finance minister. Uh, and Joe and I had uh, a long sit down at a, at a nice coffee shop uh, at the Four Seasons. And we had a talk about, you know, what his vision was and what he would want to do. Um, and I thought... You know, who am I to be contesting this, right? If if the province can get the benefit of a guy like uh, Joe Oliver, I'd be uh, all over it. And so I threw in my support for him. Uh, and, you know, the best laid plans. He lost the nomination battle also to a guy by the name of Robin Baber, who uh, not only won the nomination battle, but actually won the riding. He became the, the MPP for York Center. Uh, he unseated a liberal. There were a lot of liberals unseated in the last uh, in the last election, uh, dissatisfaction with the Wynne-McGinty government. Um, but what happens is once you kind of put 
your name out there, even once you dip that toe in, the piranhas are all over you. So they're, you're very much in play, right? If you remember your old corporate law days about, a, you know, somebody makes a bid on a company, yeah, it's a stupid bid. No one's going to buy out the company at that price. Well, lo and behold, that means a lot of other people come to the table and start sniffing around. So there've been a lot of uh, requests and talk and suggestions about where I could go or should go or would go. Um, and up to this point, I've, I've managed to guard against that and said, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty happy uh, where I am. I, I would never say never. The, the sweet siren song of politics uh, continues to be in the back of my head, but I think better than most because I've spent a fair bit of time around politicians and known some politicians you know, fairly closely. I know how bad a life they have. I know that's going to sound strange to a lot of people who look at them and say, are you kidding me? You're, you know, a, an MP, for example, not our provincial MPPs, but an MP gets paid quite well, uh, $160,000, $170,000. They got a wonderful pension after six years. Our MPPs get a fraction of that. People forget how poorly paid they are, $116,000, no pension. So yeah, that's good money for a lot of people. That's not great money, I would suggest. And when you look at how much they're working, you know, people think your, your politicians are lazy. You may disagree with every single thing that they do. You may despise them as human beings. You may despise their policies. I would never tell you that somebody in another party who I dislike isn't working hard. Man, do they work hard. Uh, and they work hard at a job where every four years they got to go for a job interview again <laughs> or they get fired. Uh, and when they get fired, you know, where do they go? What do they do at that point? Like life is over and people hate you. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't even hate you. Maybe they hate the leader who you've only met like three or four times, but that's the reason why you got the boot. For a control freak like myself, it's very hard to admit that that very little of what I have to say, do, or want is going to have direct impact on whether I succeed in this you know, incredible endeavor. You have to play nice with lots of other people. And there's a lot of serendipity and luck involved in that. A lot of rubber chicken dinners and missing time with your family. Um, and frankly, I mean, you and I both know I'm, I'm in private practice. I'm not a crown attorney who can take a leave of absence and give this a swing and see what happens. Uh, if I put my heart into it and, and spend six months trying to win a nomination battle, another six months trying to win an election uh, and I lose, there's nothing to come back to. Clients are gone, right? A year's gone by. My partners will have taken that on uh, and I'd have to start maybe not from scratch, but pretty close to that. That's scary. On that topic of being a control freak and the things you do have control over, um, let's talk about persuasion. I want to talk about advocacy because that's a question that I ask of all the litigators. And I think it's a question our listeners really like to hear uh, people's perspective on what persuasion means to them. So if we could reduce it to maybe two or three core tenets of what you see as the, the, the fundamentals of advocacy and persuasion. What is it? So first of all, I try to simplify. Um, I think a lot of times the mistake that's made is that you try to make any good argument or every good argument as opposed to the best argument. I actually think you're often better off. And it's very hard for us to let go of this. Uh, is to say, but you know, that argument's pretty good. That could be the one that wins. What's your best argument? And weave a story around that. When I say a story, I don't mean fiction, right? These are nonfiction stories, but I mean, whether it's a judge or a jury, it doesn't matter. This, this, story has to be told. Your client has a story to tell and the law will apply to that story. Uh, but if you can't tell that, if you're so laser focused on the law that you haven't explained who your client is and how they got into the situation they got into and why you think that situation doesn't you know, create a criminal offense or doesn't uh, meet the standard of proof, 
you're just arguing numbers. It's it's almost like being a computer looking at zeros and ones. That's not going to compel anybody. That's not going to persuade anybody. You need to get at the core of the humanity of the person in front of you. Um, and I've had some very, very bad people as clients, or certainly very, I would amend that. I've had some people facing very, very bad offenses as clients. And my job is to show that they're not very, very bad people. Right. They, they are facing very serious offenses. They may have done something very seriously wrong, but you have to find that kernel of humanity and weave your story around that. What about advice that you hear given all the time as a cliche, but you think, oh, if I hear that again, what terrible advice. Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. You heard that one before. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, how many times are we told that? We even told that in law school, right? Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. That's not really true. Right. I mean, frame your questions very carefully. Uh, but many times, not to say all the time, but many times you can phrase a question in a way where, frankly, the answer doesn't matter. It's right. the question that's so brilliant. So why would you not ask that question, even though you don't know the answer to it? Um, sometimes you've got to just go with your gut. I, I had a trial recently. It was a sexual assault case. Um, two co-workers on a weekend at one of these uh, sort of children's festivals. Um, and uh the complainant was working a first aid tent and my client was one of the managers. And the allegation was that after hours, basically when everything had closed up, he forced her into a washroom and sexually assaulted her. Um, and throughout the entire examination in chief, uh, or even just as it opened up, so the Crown Attorney is talking to the complainant and talks to her about her time as a, uh, as this first aid assistant in these tents. Um, and, and she says, well, you know, I'm not working there anymore. New job. Crown leaves it at that and goes on. Well, it's interesting. New job. Wonder what she's doing. You know, would it would it matter to me if I, you know, what what could she possibly say that would cause me a problem? It turns out her new job for the last like year and a half has been as a security guard, an armed security guard, in which she's made hundreds of arrests. She says she's trained in the use of weaponry. She's trained in the use of handcuffs. She's trained in the use of reporting to police. And yet her claim in this case was that. After this assault, the reason why, and this gets back into all these rape myths, right? That is one of the problems because I had to very carefully structure an examination that was fair and within the rules. But after this, this alleged incident, you know, she doesn't do what is ex quote unquote expected, the stereotype of report immediately. But I think um, if I could just interject, I think what you're pointing out here, and this is a subtlety that's sure. lost upon people, and that is what one does, uh, the myth is not necessarily the particular. Right. And so if the relevancy comes to the person's question exactly. and answer, it's very different than saying you did not resist, therefore. But if the person's entire rationale of why this was a sexual assault allegation was what I'm, I suspect you're about so, to say. Right. So it suddenly became very, very specific, right? And as it turned out, she had been working, I, I didn't know this at the time either, but it came out through cross-examination. She had been working as a security guard even then at the time she was doing it part-time. So this, this first aid thing that she was doing was a weekend thing, but her full-time gig was actually as the security guard. And yet in her statements to police and in her conversations with the Crown and Chief, she had talked about how she didn't know who to call. She didn't know how to report to police. She didn't know how to respond to these things. Well, that sounded very problematic when we went through and said, you know, how many times have you called the police because you were a security guard on these same grounds? It turned out hundreds. You know, how many times have you made arrests? She talked about physicality and the level of physicality. So yeah, her answers might well still have been true. It doesn't prove that my client is innocent, but it clearly raised 
some doubt uh, about, you know, how, why would you respond that way when you're not just the average person, you're very much a specific person with a specific core level of training. So again, it, you know, it's not, it's not like a switch has been flicked and that's a guarantee and off we go. But it does raise exactly the kind of circumstance where sometimes these questions are very much relevant. They're not going to the myth of what the typical person would do. They're going to the specificity of what this person with this training and this background and this environment says she has done in the past but didn't do this time. Right. Um, and so that was a question I didn't know the answer to. But boy, when I got the answer, it changed a lot of my cross-examination. Now, that being said, I mean, there is still a kernel of truth to not asking the question you don't know the answer to. And this comes into another thing I'll ask you about, and that is the ability to accept risk and uncertainty as a defense lawyer, because the answer might be before a jury, I now work at a sexual assault crisis center. Uh, yeah, I, I see. And I, th I actually thought about that as I asked the question. It wouldn't have bothered me. So if she now works at a sexual assault crisis center, I mean, this wasn't in front of a jury, but arguably in front of a jury, they might have looked at that as, as saying, all right, she's either been so scarred by this event that it turned her to that, uh, to that task, or some people might perhaps unfairly make the assumption, well, oh, here's the perfect person to know, uh, you know, how to gin up a sexual assault allegation. I, I think neither of those assumptions is fair, and neither of them would be relevant. So I wouldn't have a problem if that's what she said. If that had been her answer, I would have just, you know, moved off and it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So it was a calculated risk. I agree with you. Um, but I think it's it's that cliche of never that I, you know, I wouldn't agree with. I, and I again, I think how one frames the question, there are better examples of that where it's, you know, the answer really doesn't matter. It's you, your use of the question is what's putting the thought process into the minds of the trier of fact. So it's about good question phraseology. Okay. More basic question. What's something in your briefcase that would surprise people? <laughs> I don't know. What is in my briefcase now? Um, I mean, I don't go anywhere without my, my Surface Pro. So my whole office uh, is on that. Um, Probably some of the time that you see me in court and it looks like I'm working, I'm just reading the newspaper or uh, sending an email uh, to someone or something. I don't think I keep anything too surprising uh, in the briefcase, but I do keep my entire office there. I, I find that when it comes to you know juggling, uh, so much of a criminal defense lawyer's time is spent getting from one place to another and then waiting when you get there. There's a lot of sit around and wait. Um, and if you want to have any sort of human life and see your kids or go out for a movie once in a while, those waiting times are killer. So for me, I like if I'm sitting waiting for a set date to be called, I, I'll never just sit. My phone is out. My laptop is out. I'm sending emails. I'm sending messages. I, I've done interviews by text uh, back and forth while in court. Like I will use that time. When court ends at 4.30, I've gotten a lot done probably, not just in court, but out of court. So I don't know what's in there that's uh, surprising, but those tools would never not be in there. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. It's almost like, you know, in court, you're going to wait at a train station, so you may as well bring Yeah, some. and it's amazing to me how often I see people who just, that time is just lost, right? They sit there, maybe they're doing a crossword puzzle. Ah, it's fine. You want to entertain yourself. I get it. But if there's something else that you could be doing, I would rather entertain myself at home in the company of my wife and kids than entertain myself uh, on a wooden bench at the College Park Courthouse. I have to say, I thought what you were going to say is always in your briefcase would be plane tickets because you love to travel. <laughs> <laughs> I, w I wish that was the case. Um, I do love to travel. Uh, I keep the plane tickets on my watch now, all the boarding passes. But you there, had a whole so I wouldn't even have to do that. I did. That was. I wish I could get back to it. I have not had the time, but I was able to. 
I'm not going to say monetize. I got paid very little money out of this, but I did get um, some invitations to some cool places um, that I get. Serendipity has been so much a part of my life. It was just a complete fluke, but I've always loved travel. I think a lot of people love travel. I mean, who doesn't? But I like to try to get off the beaten path and see places that perhaps I wouldn't normally be able to go. I'm very much uh, into sort of quote unquote adventure travel. So the deeper I can get into a jungle or the higher up I, I can get on a mountain, the more fun uh, I'll have with that. And I had... Uh, there was a, a magazine then called Travel Lovers that was just coming as a supplement to the National Post, which is the paper I've subscribed to now for quite some time. And uh, they put out a call for for submissions. So I called up the editor and said, you know, hey, I'd, I'd love to write something. And <laughs> I remember the editor's like, who the hell are you? Like, we met a call for submissions to writers. I'm like, I'm a writer. I write all the time. And showed them, you know, some legal writing. Um, and they, they said, well, you know, we're looking for, uh, we're looking actually for a cover story about Costa Rica. I'm like, that's phenomenal. I just got back from Costa Rica. I had, in fact, just gotten back about six months before from Costa Rica. They're like, okay, why don't you send it to us? And there's a lesson in this. Why don't you send it to us and we'll see? Um, and that had always bothered me. And media, travel, a lot of places are like this. And frankly, a lot of the, the economy is like this. You know, do the work first and then we'll see what we can do about it. And I push back. I'm like, no, I'm not going to give you the work and then find out if you're going to pay me. Look, I'm not looking to get rich off of this, but what do you pay a writer? Eventually they came around and they're like, fine, you know, we'll give you 600 bucks for the story or whatever it was. I didn't care what the number was. I honestly didn't care what the number was. I wanted to be a published travel writer. Uh, so they agreed, sent it in. I was the cover story on Travel Lovers magazine. And literally, that was the last issue of Travel Lovers. It went bankrupt uh, before the next quarter. <laughs> what did was, you do? <laughs> so that was the thing. I was like, well, I finally got in. I'm toast. But oh. I, I could not let it go. So I, it actually caused me to start reaching out. I ended up writing a, a little bit for a couple of the mommy blogs, which is funny because obviously not a mom, but I have some kids. Uh, so I was writing, you know, about children's travel destinations for the Yummy Mummy Club and, uh, and another uh, mommy blog. And eventually I pitched uh, a column to, I think, a friend of yours over a Precedent magazine. Right, uh, a lot of, yeah, Melissa, a lot of people know Precedent magazine who are, are listening to this. And I said, you know, have you ever thought about having a travel column? And for a while, uh, I think, you know, it worked out well. Yeah, we were I were doing it. a travel column um, in the digital space and they would publish a small piece in the print edition. Eventually, even Precedent decided, you know, we don't travel is not what we're going to focus on. They pulled back from that. Um, I think I published one for for Law Times or one of the law uh, magazines or papers. Um, and recently, I just have not had the opportunity, you know, that when as practice gets busy and and the um, requirements of various philanthropic organizations that I do stuff for, I haven't had time to write it up. I still get to go and travel. I've still gotten out and traveled a, a fair bit, but I'm not currently uh, you know, writing anything in that space. I would love to continue to do it. It was under this sort of cheeky name we called The, the Crime Traveler, um, which was a take, on, obviously, on The Time Traveler. And uh, I had another column called The Crime Traveler's Wife, which was always about the things my wife didn't want to do when we went on vacation because she would rather not get on the small boat or rather not climb the big mountain uh, and things like that. So it was very, very enjoyable, and uh, you know, perhaps if I didn't, uh, if I didn't have to put food on the table, I would do more of that and a little less of going to jails just to balance things, uh, balance things out. So what you're saying is, the next time you come back on off council, we need to do it in Costa Rica. 
I've been to Costa Rica a few times. Something like that. We'll uh, find yeah, a destination. Last trip was Panama. There's lots of great. Look, I, I can talk forever <laughs> just about where you want to go. So I get people to tell me, you know, how old are you? What are the kids? Are you bringing the kids? Are you bringing a spouse? Where do you want to go? Adventure, cruising. I love talking about that. I always want to be planning uh, the next space. I actually don't have something in mind right Well, I always have something in mind, but I don't have something booked. Um, but the, the lesson in that, I think, is to tell people, you know, people ask, what do you do? It's such a weird question. Everyone meets you, what do you do? We know what they mean. Like, they mean, what do you do for a living? But that's not how they phrase it. What do you do? Like, if I really answer the question, what do you do? I do a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do that on purpose. I don't want to do the same thing all the time. I am a criminal defense lawyer. I am a father. I am on a board of directors of numerous charitable organizations. I am a traveler. I am a writer, even though I hadn't written anything at that point. I told them, I am a writer. I am a TV guy, a radio guy. So, you know, when the question is, what do you do? The answer is, well, how how much time do you have? I do a lot of things. And you should, too. You don't have to do one thing. So I I don't believe that criminal law in particular has to be all-encompassing. It will try. It's a very jealous mistress, as the saying goes. But don't let it. And with that question of how much time do I have, we don't have any. So I'll end with the final question I ask everyone. If you had the power to be AG or reverse the Supreme Court of Canada decision, what would you do? I'll tell you the one that bugs me the most right now is the Jordan decision, which, of course, everyone has heard about. Uh, Jordan being uh, the seminal case recently from the Supreme Court of Canada, not even so recent anymore, but basically setting time limits uh, ostensibly on how long a trial can go before it gets dismissed for uh, for unreasonable delays. So 18 months in what we call our lower courts uh, and 30 months in the Superior Court. And the language, if you read the case without looking at the numbers and without looking at the context, the language is just striking. It's vicious. The Supreme Court is coming down and saying, we have a crisis in our justice system. Things are taking too long. There is a culture of complacency. No one seems to care about getting things done and getting them done quickly. And by God, there's a right to try within a reasonable time. And we're going to finally put some teeth into it. I'm reading this. Fantastic. It's about time. And so the numbers are now 18 months and 30 months. What the hell? They were shorter beforehand. I mean, all of that talk, all of that conversation, all of that bluster was basically to say our fix for a justice system that can't get you a trial fast enough is to give the justice system more time. And even since then, subsequent cases that have followed Jordan, they're always finding ways to inch that limit even higher. 30 months, but it's actually going to be a little bit more in a complex case. 30 months, but we're going to subtract, uh, you know, these kinds of things that have to be done there. 30 months, but... We're not solving the problem. We're talking a big game and we're making it worse. So, you know, if I were there on Jordan, I might have said a different number and I might have said, I mean it. Thank you. That was it, Bruchy. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Sean.